Amen. So quite a bit of red in the room today. I can tell there's some, some big event uh, going on today. I was laughing this week because on social media, I kept seeing this meme over and over again that said, uh, when we said we wanted things to go back to normal, we didn't mean Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Uh, so, and, I, and I'm one of those guys. I'm not actually um, uh, a lifelong Chiefs fan, although I'm becoming one more and more every time you guys go to the Super Bowl. Um, I'm a recovering Dallas Cowboy fan. Uh, yeah, I know. But here's one thing that we, we can have in common here. I will root against Tom Brady with you all day, every day. So, so we're, we're going, definitely going with, with the Chiefs. So he looks so funny in that different uniform. I just, but this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. So grab your Bibles and turn there. Before we get to the big game, we have a big text that we need to uh, unpack here today. So Genesis chapter 37, and just by, uh, by way of reminder, last week we um, took a little bit of a break from the chosen line that we've been following through the book of Genesis. And um, as God always does, he, he follows this pattern throughout this book where um, he takes a break from the chosen line and he explains to us what is going on with the unchosen line and then picks back up again with the chosen line. So that was last week. We took a break in Genesis chapter 36 and looked at uh, the genealogy of Esau and some uh, really um, powerful challenges that, that we could uh, take away from that. So this week we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, picking back up with the chosen line again. And from this point, if you remember, um, Jacob is still a part of the story, but he's no longer going to be really the main character of the narratives moving forward. It's predominantly going to be about a young man that we're going to meet today named Joseph. And before we jump in and unpack Joseph's story, I want to remind you of something that happened way back in Genesis chapter 15. So this is a, a ways back, back when we first began and God approaches a man by the name of Abram and he tells him that he is going to establish a covenant with him. And the reason why it's important that we go back to Genesis chapter 15 to set this story up today is because in Genesis chapter 15, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham that you're going to be a great nation. A multitude of people are going to come from you and kings. And we, we see God uh, tell uh, Abram this. But he also tells Abram something uh, almost shocking. When we see it in the text, he says, before all of this can come about, before you take possession of the land, know that you are going to be sojourners and you will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Now, I don't know about you, but 400 years is an awful long time. Right? For, and God could tip his hand that early on, even to Abraham, and say, listen, I've got these plans for you, these incredible plans for you, but you also need to know that you're not going to see them in your lifetime, and neither will your son or your son's sons or even his sons. But I am going to establish a covenant with you that I promise to fulfill. But before it happens, you have to know that you're going to go through some difficult days. You're going to go through some trying times before that comes to fruition. And so we've been following this family line up into this point and wondering all the while, so how does this Egypt thing come about? 
And that's what our story is about today. In Genesis chapter 37, when we meet a young man named Joseph, we're going to begin to see how God, in his providence and in his sovereignty, begins a journey to take his people to Egypt. In fact, God nearly hand-delivers Joseph to Egypt. And it's powerful that we remember this from the very onset today because as we go through this story, we're going to think, Lord, where are you in some of these things? But it's, again, it's a powerful reminder to us that God is always working, God is always moving, and he's always in control of, of every situation. And ultimately, when we get to the end of our text today, my prayer for us is that we would agree with Joseph later on in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where he summarizes this event that we're going to talk about today. And in his summary, he tells his brothers, what you meant for harm and evil, God meant for good. So let's pray this morning and we'll unpack this text together. Father God, we thank you so much, God, for the truth that you are in control of every situation, God. Even when we don't feel it, and sometimes, God, even when we don't see it, we know that you are at work. God, you are moving and orchestrating things for our good. Your word tells us in Romans 8 that you work things in accordance to our good, God. And we thank you so much for that. And Father, I pray that you'll be with us as we read this text this morning. God, help us to unpack it. Help us to notice the little truths in it. God, and I pray that whatever you ask us to do here this morning that we would do it, God. We want to be doers of the word, not hearers only, God. We want to respond in obedience to what the Holy Spirit asks us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, as we're going to walk through uh, this entire chapter, I'm going to read every verse, and I'm going to try to go through it fairly quickly, and then we'll circle back around at the end and look at three timeless truths. But before we get there, we're going to kind of unpack this in scenes, okay? So I'm going to break the text up in scenes so that we can digest and really kind of understand the narrative together because this is critical for our understanding of the book of Genesis moving forward, that we would understand what's going on here in God's word. So the first thing, the first scene that we're going to look at this morning is what I've called a mounting jealousy, a mounting jealousy. Pick up reading with me in chapter 37, verse 2. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved them more than his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
And when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So again, the first thing we see in this first scene of the text is a, is a mounting jealousy. And if you're reading with me in here, you can see why his brothers may uh, be a little bit angry with him, right? And a, and a little bit jealous of him. First off, we see in one of the very first verses here that Joseph is out uh, with his brothers in the field. And uh, it says Bilhah and Zilpah. So we know it's Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So those are the sons of these two wives of Jacob. And they're out in the field together. And, and Joseph runs home to dad. And he what? What do we call that when you run home? He, he tattletales on them, right? And they don't like that. They don't like that he's given reports to dad about, about what he's what they're doing and what they're not doing. And then even more than that, it says in verse 3 and 4 uh, that Joseph uh, was loved by Jacob more than all the other ones. That his, his father so favored him that he even gave him special treatment and, and, and special things all throughout his life. And we know that that is a terrible, terrible thing, right? That's a recipe for disaster. If any of you in the room have children, you know that you should never tip your hand to which one of your children is your favorite. Right? No, some some of you still like. Of course not. That you should never you should never put your children in this situation where they're experiencing favoritism. Right? And and Jacob, he he doesn't really mind much, right? Jacob is just kind of out there. Um, not not only does do the brothers think that he loves Joseph more, he has demonstrated that he loves Joseph. Joseph more. And so you see this mounting jealousy, this jealousy building. In fact, in here, a little note on the robe of many colors. Most of the Hebrew translations, this is a very difficult translation for them. It only appears one other time in scripture. And it actually is probably best translated. It's a, it's a coat of multicolors, but it's a long sleeve coat. And so if you think about this for just a second, all the brothers are shepherds. They're out working in the field. And here is Joseph. He's walking around. He's got the nice clothes on, right? He's got the long sleeve shirt. He is not the guy that's prepared to be doing any kind of major work, right? And that plays into this as well. His brothers know, listen, that guy, look at him. Look at him walking around here in his nice clothes, afraid to get his hands dirty. We're the only ones that do stuff around here. We're the only ones who actually have to work, right? And, and look, dad loves him more than all the rest of us. And, and he even has this funny looking long sleeve jacket. Who works in that? You ever had that experience before where you, you do a particular line of work and you see somebody who shows up and you're like, clearly they do not have experience in this, right? Um, if, if you work construction or have a background in anything outdoors or, or you know, those types of things, sometimes you'll see somebody who shows up for like a, a service project or something and you're like, okay, this is going to be the first time that you've done this clearly. And I can tell that based upon what you're wearing. And that's the, that's the part of the mounting jealousy that's going on here with the brothers. They don't like this guy. And dad loves him more and dad is showing how much he loves him more. And, and Joseph, Joseph, he's lacking in what we like to call self-awareness, right? In, in this moment, he doesn't feel the tension building that's building. And he probably should feel the tension building. 
but he's not picking up on it. In fact, me and Cameron were talking about this this week as we were uh, driving home uh, from Wednesday night church. I said, hey, when we read and talk about this story, what jumps out to you? Like, what's one of the things that stands out to you? I like to do that with our kids. I encourage you to do that with your kids as well. Is read through text and ask them, what, what is it that jumps out to you? No right or wrong answer. And, and I love what Cameron said. Cameron, Cameron said that what jumped out to him was that Joseph really didn't help himself. Right? And I thought, you know what? You're exactly right. With this mounting jealousy, he's not picking up on the tension that's building here. And the way that he responds is probably in the worst possible way that he could have responded. God gives him this special dream and shows him these things. And and instead of just kind of keeping quiet and to himself, what does Joseph have to do? He immediately has to find somebody to tell. And who's, who's the captive audience? It's the whole family. He gets all the brothers around and he goes, hey, I had this really cool dream. And in this dream... You guys bow down to me, right? That does not go well, ever, right? Everybody knows that. And not only does he not pick up on this mounting jealousy the first time, but he has a second dream, and this time he gets mom and dad involved and all the boys, and he's just really not picking up on this tension that is building within this family. And it's a good reminder for us And this is, before we move on here, is is just to understand in all of this mounting jealousy that this is what really sets the stage for what is coming next. So look at with me verse 12. We'll start reading verse 12. The second scene that we see here is a providential encounter. It's a providential encounter. Verse 12, it says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here am I. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I am seeking my brothers Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So in this second scene here, we see a providential encounter. Jacob approaches Joseph, and he knows that he can trust him to bring back an accurate word of what his brothers are doing, right? He has prior experience that Joseph is more than willing to tattle on these guys if he needs to, right? So dad says, hey, they've taken the flocks, and they're shepherding them all the way in Shechem. I need somebody to go check out What's going on down there? Go, go check in on your brothers. See what they're doing. And he says, bring word back to me. So Joseph, being the good favorite son that he is, says, okay, dad. And he takes off on his journey, right? And he goes to Shechem. And when he gets to Shechem, he finds no one. His brothers aren't there. It's a bunch of empty fields. And this is where the providential encounter comes into play here. You can't uh, read this story and think, man, uh, This just happens by, um, you know, accident here. You have to see the providential hand of God in this encounter. Because when he shows up in Shechem, his brothers aren't there. They've already moved on to Dothan. And the Bible, I love it that it describes this. It says, and a man found him wandering in the fields. Well, what are the odds of this? 
that he goes down there to find his brothers. They're not there. And before he can leave and return back home, a man finds him wandering around in the field. And he says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. They're supposed to be uh, pasturing and shepherding a a flock of uh, sheep here, and I don't know where they're at. And this guy's like, hey, uh, actually, I overheard them uh, say that they're going to Dothan. And by the way, Dothan is some 80 miles from uh, where he's currently at. So so the, the providential encounter in this text that you see God moving in this so that Joseph is standing right where Joseph is supposed to be in order to talk with the man that Joseph needs to talk with, also that God can put him in contact with his brothers. It's a powerful, powerful thing in this story here. Because if Joseph doesn't bump into this guy, and this man doesn't tell him that your brothers are in Dothan, Joseph probably spends some time wandering around looking for them, but eventually turns around and heads home to dad. Just to give a report that I I don't know where they went, but I was unable to find them. But again, we have to remember as we work through this story that none of this is happening by accident. God is being very intentional in his working here, and he bumps into this guy in the middle of the field wandering around on purpose. God needs him to be where his brothers are at for what takes place next. So we saw mounting jealousy. We've seen a providential encounter. Now we see a harmful plot. Look at verse 18 through 24 with me. It says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So again, we come out of this providential encounter, meets this random guy in a field. The random guy in the field says, you need to go to Dothan. So Joseph takes off to Dothan. And as he's coming over the horizon, his brothers see him from afar, the Bible says. And when they see him inside, they begin to be filled with hatred. Remember, this mounting jealousy has now become something much, much worse. It's now manifested itself as hatred in their hearts towards this brother of theirs. And when they seem afar off, they begin to plot what harmful things they might do to him. And I want you to think about this for a second because this is his family. I've been angry with people before. I've even been angry with people within my own family But I don't really recall a time in my life where I was this angry with somebody in my family. That when they see him and they see the robe, the long sleeve robe, they say, here comes that dreamer, the good for nothing, who does nothing while we do all the work. Daddy's favorite, the tattletale. And then they begin to scheme and they look around and realize that, hey, nobody out here is going to know what we decide to do to this guy. 
So they begin to come up with a plan. And their initial plan is not good. Their initial plan is, let's just kill him. And we can bury him out here in the wilderness and no one will ever know. We'll just say that a wild animal must have carried him off. And so you see this unbelievable harmful plot coming together. And as he approaches, one of the brothers finally speaks up. And this is the moment that one of the brothers has to say, listen guys, this is not at all what we're supposed to be doing. This is a very ungodly plan. This is a terrible plan. We should not be thinking about how to harm our own brothers. But that's not exactly what Reuben does. Reuben does say, let's not kill him. But, but Reuben isn't thinking about Joseph here as much as he's thinking about Reuben. Remember, because of some decisions that Reuben has made and some actions that he's taken with uh, father's concubines, he's got himself in a bad spot with dad. And he's supposed to be the oldest. And he's supposed to be the one that, that Jacob can count on. And he's supposed to be the heir of all these brothers. But he's disqualified himself in so many ways. And he's knocked himself dad down in his dad's opinion. So in his mind he's thinking, let's just throw him in this pit. And then I'll return him to dad. And if I can return him to dad since he's his favorite. Well then maybe I can restore myself back to dad as well. So Reuben begins to change the plan a little bit, but it's not an honorable change that he's doing. And then ultimately we see that when Joseph gets there, they go ahead, they disrobe him, they, they take his robe off and they throw him into a pit. It says the pit was empty, there's no water in it. It's because it's a cistern used to store water, but this one apparently is dry according to the scriptures. So it's like, it's like a big uh, well in the ground with high walls and no way to get out. You have to be lowered down into it and pulled back up. And so they throw Joseph down in there as like a little prison cell until they figure out what they can do to him. Well, the next scene that we see here in verse 25 is a profitable opportunity. So read with me. It says, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. That matters. Remember, that matters. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So in this scene here, we see a profitable opportunity. So while Joseph is down in the pit, Awaiting his fate and the decision of his brothers, the brothers decide, let's sit down and have a meal together. This is an unbelievable scene here. While Joseph is in the pit begging for his life, and we know this because of uh, other passages later in Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture, that Joseph is pleading with them and hollering for them from the pit to spare his life. And these guys are just sitting down having lunch together. Like nothing is even going on. That's how much hatred and how, how callous their hearts have become. Is they don't even care about the, the cries of their brother. So they're sitting down to eat and then Judah speaks up. So now it's Judah's opportunity to step in and do the right thing. Where Reuben failed, Judah can succeed here. 
And he says, listen, we shouldn't hurt our brother. That's terrible. It would, be, it would be a terrible thing to kill our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's sell him into slavery instead, right? And as you're reading through the text, you're like, wait, that's not really all that much better, right? And so you can just see all the brothers' hearts in this. Their heart in this is not for God. Their heart in this is not for Joseph. It's just how they can profit from this opportunity. So they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. They don't know they're headed to Egypt, but God knows they're headed to Egypt. And when his life is spared, they sell him to this caravan for 20 shekels of silver, which is the price for a young slave. And so the scripture tells us that they took Joseph down to Egypt. Let's continue on in verse 29. We, we begin to see a heartless cover-up, a heartless cover-up. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So in, this, in the storyline, in the narrative here, we see it now uh, progress to a heartless cover-up. They go so far as to take his robe and dip it in blood and take it all the way back to Jacob to set up this whole idea that, that Joseph is dead, that he's been attacked by animals, that he's now been torn to pieces. And they go through all of this to cover up the sin of their selling their brother into slavery here. We see an unbelievable heartless cover-up. What jumps out to me in this text is when Jacob is mourning, it says he tore his garments and put sackcloth on, and all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. The very sons who committed the sin of selling their brother into slavery who took his robe and dipped it in the blood of a goat and gave it to dad and said that he's dead, are now going into their father in his time of mourning to comfort him, the Bible says. Knowing all the while the truth. These are the moments that you read in this text and make you scratch your head and wonder how in the world could they continue to go through all of this and not one of them Come under conviction and fess up. It just jumps out to me that every single one of them have the opportunity to sit down with their dad and go, you know what, I can't keep this up anymore. We did something way wrong. We sold your son into slavery. And listen, Abraham is a very, very rich man. No doubt in my mind if they confess in this moment right here that Abraham can head down to Egypt and Abraham would be willing to pay whatever price is put upon his son's head to get him back. This is their opportunity to confess to everything that's going on, but we know that they do not. 
verse 36. This is a very key verse to this. The last scene here is a sovereign outcome. A sovereign outcome. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And I call this a sovereign outcome because in this moment, we begin to see the plans of God unfold. That God initiated all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham when God said, you will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and then you will be able to have the promised land. We see God doing his work and this is a sovereign outcome because we know and what we'll find out in our study in the book of Genesis is if Joseph doesn't go find his brothers in Dothan and if Joseph doesn't get thrown in the pit and if his brothers don't decide to sell him into slavery, and if those, those uh, slave owners don't just happen to be headed down to Egypt, and they, don't, they just happen to sell him to a guy with very high ranking within Egypt, then this story doesn't unfold the way that we know it does. So it's incredible for us to be able to look back now at this verse and see the sovereign hand of God at work throughout this entire thing. Remember, what his brothers meant for harm, God meant for good. And so real fast this morning, I'm only going to try to take a couple minutes of your time, but I've got three timeless truths that we see in this text that I want to make sure that we all talk about before we head out of here this morning because they're powerful. And let me just say right out of the gate, most of them are things that are not going to be things that you've never heard before. They're things that we hear over and over and over again and over and over again in Scripture, but we need to hear them over and over again. So here's the first one, the first timeless truth that we see in this Scripture. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. If you look at this entire story from the very beginning, there's not a single person involved in this narrative that is not in some kind of sin. His brother's unbelievable sin. His, his father even, Jacob. We see sin of favoritism and all kinds of things going on. Lack of leadership within his own boys and his own family. And even, I want to point out to you, sin in Joseph. And it's a powerful reminder today that every single person in this room is a sinner. And every single person in this story is a sinner. And it matters because we've got to remember as we're working through this book of Genesis and all through the Bible that God is the hero of every story that we come across. And no man in this story is any kind of hero worthy of being set up as a model for us to follow our life after. We have to be extremely careful about this. That God is the hero of this story. Abraham was not the hero. Isaac was not the hero. Jacob is definitely not the hero. Joseph, while not as sinful as it appears maybe as some of his fathers and grandfathers, is still not the hero of the story. Joseph is just another sinner that God has chosen to go forward with in grace. And this matters for us because it agrees with Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or another translation says, or his holy standard. 
I love that. It's, it's a very powerful reminder to us that we're not, uh, we're all sinners, but it's also a reminder to us of, of who we really are, right? That we would never forget who we really are. That this side of heaven, I'm still a sinner. And I'm still capable of all kinds of unbelievable sin. Just as we see in this text, we read passages like this oftentimes. And how many times do you find yourself going, I would never do that. What were these guys thinking? I would never do that. And all I can think to myself is, praise God that my story isn't being written down for everyone to read. Because if that was the case, we would be able to open up some book and go, I don't know who this Jeremy guy is, but he's dumb. He does some terrible, terrible things. And man, does he fall short of God's glory. And I would never do some of the things that he does. And in that moment, when we, get, when we begin to do that, we forget who we really are at our core. Now, in Christ, we've been freed from the bondage of sin. We no longer have to sin, but we all know this to be true in the room, that we didn't become sinless. And we're all one decision away from something terrible happening. That's why we must guard our hearts. We must never think that I would never do that because that's dangerous territory to find ourselves in. We must always walk through this life with the thought of, Lord, I am capable of just about anything. Help me to follow you. Keep me from sin and wickedness. So it's just a powerful reminder to us that every single person is a sinner and that we must guard our hearts. I love Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, above all else, guard your heart. From, from it flows all of life. Guard your heart. And a caution against self-righteousness. Again, this is another powerful example in this story. It's not just us looking at people here and saying, I would never do that. We must guard our heart against that. But we also must guard ourselves against self-righteousness. Because the longer we walk with Christ, the more likely we are to find ourselves in a place where we begin to look at other people's sin different than we look at our own. And we begin to forget that, man, that used to be me. And we change the standard, right? The standard becomes ourselves, and so we begin to use our lives as a comparison on everyone else and go, man, why are they just not more like me? I don't struggle with that. And then that's another dangerous place to get because we are not the standard. When we become the standard, it's easy to become self-righteous because we've lowered the bar down so far that we can clear it. But we were never the standard. The standard, again, according to Romans chapter 3, is God's holy and perfect standard. It's what, it's what helps us combat self-righteousness in our life. It's a constant reminder that I might be better than some, but I'm not better than God. And all it takes is one sin for me to fall short of his glorious standard. And it's humbling. And it helps keep us in check. Just this reminder that all of us are sinners. Number two, really quickly, sin often leads to more sin. Sin often leads to more sin. If you look in our story, it's a progression of sin. 
What starts out as a little bit of jealousy turns into bitterness. And not just bitterness, but bitterness that takes root in the heart of these brothers. To the point where hatred begins to build to action. They are literally willing to kill their own brother. Ultimately, we see a callousness of heart and even more sin of concealment. So it's a powerful reminder to us this morning in this text that our sin often leads to more sin if we don't do the hard work of stopping it and asking God to root it out of our lives. If we just continue down this path of sin with no kind of heart checks, I love when... Uh, in David's words, God, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. That knowing that my sin often leads to more sin should be the very reason why I want to root it out quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must deal with sin quickly. And we have to get our sin into the light. So that we're forced to deal with it. Concealment of sin unconfessed sin building on our lives ultimately just leads to more and more sin and more and more unconfessed sin and more concealment of our sin. Every single person in this room, I'm sure, can think of a time, especially when you were growing up and young, when you had the opportunity to confess about something that you knew that you did was wrong, but what did you do instead? You begin to lie about it, right? Right? And then you begin to lie about the lies. And now you're so far down the thing that you've ever been to the place where you can't even keep track of your own story anymore. And the best thing to do in that moment isn't to keep going down that path. Not with mom and dad and certainly not with God. The best thing to do in that moment is to get sin out into the light and confess it. Confess it to God. According to James 5.16, even to one another. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It brings about a level of accountability. But if we don't bring it into the light and we never confess sin, then it just stays in those deepest, darkest inside us, right? And we just continue to pretend like it's not there. We continue to conceal it. And it just leads to more and more sin. We need to get it out there. I remember when I was young, my mom would always tell me that her number one prayer for me growing up as a young man was that if I ever did anything wrong, that I would get caught. And I thought at the time, that is a crazy weird prayer. Like, why would you wish that on me? Like, why would you want me to get caught? And it wasn't until I became older, and especially now that I myself am a father, that I understand the heart behind what she was saying. Better to get caught early before you get too far down the road into something than to never get caught and be consumed by sin that ultimately leads to death. 
So a reminder that sin often leads to more sin. So get it into the light and confess it to one another. Number three, God is sovereign and his plan will not be stopped. God is sovereign and his plan will not be stopped. You cannot help but look at this story and see God's hand in it all throughout. This guy in the field is no random guy. No random chance that Joseph just bumps into him. God needs Joseph to get to his brothers because God needs Joseph in Egypt. Joseph doesn't even know that he's supposed to be in Egypt. But God knows that Joseph is supposed to be in Egypt. And remember, God gave Joseph the dreams. Just a little bit, enough to keep him encouraged. But that's all the details that God gives him. That's all that Joseph needs to know at this moment. And God didn't share with him all the crazy things that are about to happen. And I think that's intentional too. Because oftentimes in our lives, we want all the answers, right? God, show us what's going to happen. But I think if God was to show us all the things that he was going to do and show us the difficult seasons that we may have to go through, we might throw our hands up in despair and quit. So it's for our own good that he doesn't share all these. You'll remember in the book of Exodus... When God's taking his people, the Israelites, into the land, it says that he intentionally takes them out the long way. Why? Because if they were going to the the shortcut, they would see the number of people in the land and they would see their incredible size and they would cower in fear and give up. So it's God's encouragement to them that he takes them around the long way. That's what we're going to see in the life of Joseph here. Is that God is in, is in sovereign control of every moment of this story. And I love that God works in the tiniest of details. I don't know what you're going through here this morning, but I bet you many of you have showed up to this room going through something, navigating something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. And I can't promise you that God is going to come and tell you what it all means. And he's not necessarily going to share with you all the details, but know this. That God is moving, he is working, and God moves in the details, the most, the finest of details in your life. Take those little things as encouragement that God knows you. He knows where you're at. He knows what's going on with you. Nothing you're experiencing is shocking and surprising to him. And that ultimately, he's working all things together for good. Not necessarily what we like but for good. I remember when we first moved to Kansas City, we were getting ready for our first youth event here. And there was so much to be done and so many things running behind. We were stressed and we were tired and we have a million kids and home stuff and you know we're unpacking and we just got a ton of stuff on our plate and a lot going on. And I remember getting to the night of the event, and we were late, and we forgot to go pick something up from it, so we had to drive all the way to Grace Church across town, and we were going to be late, and all this was going on. I was supposed to stop at the store to get a couple things that I needed for the weekend, and I know this seems silly. You're going to think I'm crazy at first, but one of the things that I wanted to stop and get was chapstick, because it is like a blizzard six months out of the year (laughs) As you can tell, the temperature outside of my lips, the silliest of things, chapped and dry and hurting. And I remember sitting in my car. This is so silly. 
and being so frustrated in the moment. God, with everything that's going on, I don't even have time to stop and get chat. Like this was a pity party of pity parties. I'm pulling the curtain back for y'all right now. God, this is ridiculous. I didn't even have time to stop and get chapstick. You just felt alone. So I gathered myself together. I said, forget it. And I go off inside the thing. And we get inside and I pick up all the used stuff. It's in these giant boxes and it's like multiple trips. And I'm like, all right, here, it's even more stuff, you know. And the pity party's just building and building and building. And at this point, I think Aaron or somebody even texts me, hey, you out of time. I'm like, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, I don't even have time to stop at the store now. I'm so late, I'm going to have to skip all of this. And I'm furious. And inside these boxes were these little packs that they put together for the student. It had notebooks in it and, and all that, all inside this little bag, right? And the craziest thing happened. One thing that was in there, I've never, in 12 years of youth ministry, ever seen this before. But one thing that was in there was a tuba chapstick. And I know that it seems crazy. But it was too specific to not mean something. And what I learned in that moment is God works in the details of everything. And I may not understand what I'm going through and I may not like what I'm going through. But he's still there. And I know, again, like I said, that might seem silly to you. And it's just a little story for me. But it was just one of those moments that God used in my life just to show a very specific encouragement. I hope and I pray that you've had those experiences before. That you know exactly when God is moving and God is working. And that God is there and that he hasn't forgotten you. We're going to head into a time of invitation here this morning. Quick time of response. And I just want to remind you something in this story. The biggest thing in this whole story is that God will ultimately use the sin of the people to bring about their salvation. The very sin of these brothers to sell Joseph into slavery will at some point down the road lead to their salvation. Man, you can't help but see the cross of Jesus Christ in this. That the very sin of the people, God would use to bring about their salvation. That the cross of Christ was no accident, just like this is no accident. Jesus was exactly where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. So that he could be crucified on a cross at the hands of sinful people to bring about their salvation. invitation is open for all of you here this morning. We've talked about sin. We've talked about God's heart. I just want you to know that. that. You can have forgiveness of your sin in a relationship with Christ today. Let me pray and then we'll offer a time to respond. Father God, we thank you so much for your work. God, we thank you for all that you've done. God, I just pray that you'll be with this time now, this time of response. God, that you would Begin to work and be very specific where I've been general, God. God, if somebody in this room needs to put their faith and trust in you, I pray that this morning that they would do that. God, if they need to talk to us about 
church membership or even just need to come down here and pray about something that you're working in their life about, God, I pray that they'd feel the freedom to do that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.